All right, everybody, to prepare for today's ankle podcast, we're going to play a little two truths, one lie with foot facts. Number one, the average human being will walk over 100,000 miles in their lifetime. Number two, research has shown a direct correlation between the amount of foot sweat an individual has and their overall intelligence. Number three, the Guinness World Record for most feet smelled in a lifetime is over 5,600. What's the lie? Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to the Therapists in Motion podcast. Paul here, glad to be with you. I am joined by my usual cohort, Dan Mirowski. Hello, hello. As well as Sarah Guyano. Hello. And Rachel Keith. Hey, hey. So, you guys heard one, two, and three. What is the lie of our foot facts of the day? P.S. This is according to a website that I found, so they might all be incorrect. But this is all based on mentalfloss.com, so shout out to them. See, I, I think I'm going to go the lie is 100,000 miles walked. Because if you say that you're going to walk 10,000 steps a day on average, that's like, what, two to three miles walked per day? Because I think my Apple Watch lies on how many miles I actually walk when I walk 10,000 steps. And if you average the life expectancy of like 80 years, that's only like 85,000 steps by my mental math. So keep, that's my guess. Keep in mind, average human being, not average obese American. Yeah, but you know, I mean, how many people take a walk? You know, they don't walk before they're one. So I'm, I'm going to say that's the lie. I don't know. A lot of my patients think their children are really gifted because they're <laughs> walking are so smart really early. So maybe they do, Dan. And maybe that's part of me that hopes that that's the lie because I really don't want the other. I really want the other two to be true just out of pure <laughs> comedy. All right. Sarah, what do you got? I feel like I have to go with the second one that um, sweat, the amount your feet sweat and intelligence are directly related. Um I think that's ridiculous. But we want it to be true. <laughs> well, you know, I wish. <laughs> okay, well, I sweat a lot, so... <laughs> and you're really smart. And I think I'm pretty smart. And even before Sarah made her comment, I'm going with the Guinness Book of World Records. I think it's actually more than 5,000. I like it. So an even split. So Sarah is correct. <laughs> to my knowledge, <laughs> there's no direct correlation between foot sweat and intelligence. Um, what about armpit I'm, sweat? There might be. <laughs> we could start our own study and see what we have research-wise. So yes, this average was over 100,000 miles. And I believe it said Madeline Albrecht uh, working in what lab? What lab? What lab? Where are you, Mr. Fact? Uh, working in a Ohio lab with testing Dr. Scholl's products, sniffed more than 5,600 feet and an untold number of armpits. <laughs> and that is currently the Guinness World Record, because I assume that would actually be measured. You're possibly right, Rachel. Someone might have smelled more feet than that, but it's probably not recorded appropriately to prove, which is just weird That's and disturbing. A weird, that's a really weird foot fetish. I mean, podiatry? Pretty sure those guys have smelled. Yeah, but on purpose. 
smell like a general waif gets them or literally stick yeah, like put their, put their nose on their arch. I don't know. They might really whiff. like feet. It's true. Well, know. they do. I mean, they're podiatrists. Yeah, so. All right, just steer right. this shit back on your right. Congratulations, Sarah. Course. Yes, good job. Thank you. So, <laughs> inside information. As, 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 we, as you, uh, you know, heavily asked, hopefully ascertained, wow, can't speak, uh, from obviously the title of this podcast and our foot facts, we're going to go into ankle dorsiflexion today. And, and more so, this is going to be part of a three part series where we want to discuss the importance of ankle dorsiflexion in general. And we've talked many times in different podcasts about appreciating. The full kinetic chain and appreciating the importance of difference between function and closed chain versus non. Um, and ankle dorsiflexion and limitations there can play such a huge role through the entire chain and throw off a, a great number of items. So we wanted to give some time, give a little love to a unfortunately underappreciated region. Um, there's a lot of great research out there and there's a lot of great courses out there to help you. So we want to talk about the, some of the importance of why angle dose flexion matters. And that'll be today's podcast. And then in the future, we're gonna get a little bit more in depth in different ways to truly look at, assess, and, and, and find where some deficits might be. Cause this is much more complex than just is the talocrural joint moving anterior to posterior. And then even discuss like, how do you retrain things? How do you get it moving? What does function look like? How does this become a full overall picture? So we can utilize this knowledge for all of our patients of different types. And it doesn't mean you have to go to the foot for every person you see. But I hope, and I guess I personally think that clearing the foot is essential for darn near every patient. But I'm just curious what you guys think as far as generalized foot mobility and mechanics. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a, a topic that we've talked about in, in the past off podcast air. And it came to more fruition as we were going through our internal sports medicine with, with Brett Fisher and Jen um, and, and our first class this year internally within our Spooner crew. And just how many times during Brett's career working in professional athletics, he's seen limitations in ankle dorsiflexion in his patients that may or may not have been treated previously. And I, I think that for us as movement specialists to understand, you know, okay, I was wrong on, on the lie that somebody's going to walk over a hundred thousand miles in their lifetime. And that's an average. So how many times is that foot literally going to hit the ground? Not to steal Gary Gray's when the foot hits the ground, everything changes. But I think that's part of our responsibility in our podcast and as, as movement professionals to, dive deeper into not just the talocrural joint, but the other components that make up that, that really impact dorsiflexion and how that can decrease the probability that somebody will incur injury later on. So I'm excited about this. Oh, and Dan, I know you're going through the GIFT program right now, and obviously one of the huge things to talk about a lot is ground reaction forces, correct? In particular, Absolutely. how it impacts gait and other things. Well, how do you get a ground reaction force? Well, you have to contact the ground. The foot is the area that does that. And the appropriate absorption, utilization, transmission, however you want to define it of that force is going to obviously then impact every single step afterwards. One of the things we know about the body is it doesn't happen just all movements in block. Things happen in a cascade. And if a early part of that cascade is ineffective, inefficient, dysfunctional, whatever, it's going to have a widespread impact further than just its general local point that the actual dysfunction lies. So let's, I'm going to ask you a question from your 
photographic memory because all three of us sitting here with you know that you have it and we all shake our head even though you're shaking your head no and I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners have already figured out that you do. I'm it's old, I can't trap. remember anything. <laughs> it's a steel trap. Let's let's talk about what the evidence tells us because you know we, we've said multiple times, we've heard from Greg and Ryan Johnson, Brittany Moshe, a lot of other podcast guests, the importance of being evidence-informed practitioners. What's the evidence out there that talks about the implications for lacking dorsiflexion on other aspects of the kinetic chain? And, and I love to use the word uh, evidence-informed because we have to utilize all evidence, positive, negative, and, and take things into account and say, how does it then apply to the function of my actual patients. Some of this evidence is, well, good studies. There still is debate, and that's great. There should be debates. Another thing that I'm going to say is call the hard fact, but it's things that we've seen and found in research that at least beckons you should dig into it and think about, does this impact my patient in front of me right now, or are we okay to move on to other things? So to answer your question, I mean, some of the, the, the heavy hitters that I think of first, uh, there was a study where they used individuals in the military, men and women, and it looks just generalized mobility or strength deficits across the body. So, you know, lacking of ankle dorsiflexion, lacking of hip internal rotation, lacking of core strength, and they compared them to generalized standard norms and said, so then we're going to track these individuals over years of training and other things they have to do within the military and see based on who having certain deficits would potentially have the most issues down the road. Now, does this guarantee there's a direct correlation? No, of course not. But what they found was that the greatest predictor of injury based on initial findings was a lack of ankle dorsiflexion. Does that mean it caused every injury? Of course not. Does that mean it's the greatest predictor they found? Yeah, over thousands of individuals and years of looking at research for it. That's quite an interesting thing that such an active individual, um, the greatest predictor was a lack of ankle dorsiflexion impacting things across the entire body. Uh, when you look at um, plantar fasciitis, there's good amount of research and different issues that happen there. But again, not completely agreed upon. However, seen often in research, the most common predictor of plantar fasciitis is a lack of ankle dorsiflexion. There was a study that went out with basketball players and I know it wasn't professional. I think it was collegiate. I believe it was even D2 and 3. I apologize. I don't remember off the top of my head. But it was, again, greatest predictor of injury was lack of ankle dorsiflexion. <laughs> So we go into these things and we're seeing this consistently across the board. To get outside of research, you mentioned Brett Fisher and talking about things. How often has he told us a story where he's seen a pitcher and kept having elbow and shoulder issues? And you're looking through the typical, let's look at the shoulder. How's the rotator cuff strength? How's the thoracic spine motion? How are things going? How are the hips moving? And he keeps moving down the chain. And the deficit he finds is they don't have ankle dorsiflexion. And that changes their ability to actually load on their stance leg which then changes mobility up the, up the entire chain, which then obviously they can't push off the way they want to. And that can lead to different forces. So we have all these things across the entire body where ankle dorsiflexion deficits can play a huge, huge role for us. I think it's when you, when you look at that study and it talks about the global predictor, I think you have to then think about and maybe go back a little simpler than like a high level athlete. But this really is relevant because what activity in closed chain on your feet doesn't require some form of ankle dorsiflexion? Walking, getting out of a chair, sitting onto a toilet, running, climbing stairs, like everything needs ankle dorsiflexion. Even, uh, uh, it's a great point. It's an awesome point. And even sometimes just standing there. 
Um, I have a patient right now that I was just working on. We're looking at his shoulder, but he was telling me about some low back pain he was having. Um, and just did a quick little test to see how he's taking force through his entire body. And he sits back very far posteriorly on his heels. Just his general standing posture as a posterior seated position. Now, there's a lot of things that contribute to this as far as the posture goes. A lot more than just the ankle. But he does have some stiff uh, ankle dorsiflexion and some tight calves. Is that because he's been in this position for so long? Could be. But it also contributes to his body kind of starting to continue to want to pull him back into that position. What happens when I push down on his shoulders? Immediately, he buckled right at L5-S1. Where's all of his back pain? L5-S1. What did we do? Made him learn how to actually get some weight through his big toe. Made him learn how to actually distribute through his entire foot. Had him watch when he was at work. And guess who didn't have pain when standing for a prolonged time? Simply just by shifting where their weight was. Now again, dorsiflexion is not the prime driving force there. But it's something that can play a big role. And if it's tight, people are going to constantly be away from that position. His tension is going to pull them somewhere else. Which can then change the rest of the chain. Make compensations posturally. And become a much bigger issue than it really needed to have been. Yeah, I think it's pretty phenomenal what we're talking about here today because it's not just ankle um, joint motion, but it's really the lack thereof and the lack of even mobility and stability and how that can affect you up the chain. So I have an interesting question because I distinctly remember when I started connecting the dots um, through some of the courses that we've all taken together through the Institute of Physical Art and how dramatically um, different my outcomes were once I started looking at ankle dorsiflexion in my post-op hips, in my post-op knees, in my post-op lumbar spines. And for those of you that can't see the group right now, everyone is shaking their head yes and nodding. <laughs> Um, because as we go through our schooling, that's not really something that we really learn. And so once you get out and you get on your own, you can become really super infatuated with plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, etc., being such an ankle foot problem. But when you start looking up the chain and that might be creating some of the ankle foot problems, I'm curious to hear what your guys' experience has have been when you've had those really tough post-op hips, knees that are struggling, and I'm talking the older joints that we all kind of are like, oh, maybe this person isn't really going to come along fully. But then you have this like light bulb moment of, huh, I think I'm just going to take a look at what's going on downstairs and see what's happening in their foot and ankle complex. So um, anything fun that you guys want to share with just connecting those dots for our listeners? Well, I, that's a phenomenal question. I was going to follow it up with another question, but I'll answer your question before I ask my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it goes back to the, the, the stat that Paul shared in the beginning, right? And that that's the average indi individual is going to walk 100,000 miles in their lifetime. And we know that the foot's going to hit the ground, Right. If you look at efficient mechanics in order to achieve full terminal knee extension and full hip extension, what has to happen first? Ankle dorsiflexion, right? Full ankle dorsiflexion. So I think you're on to something, and I think that's an opportunity for us as a profession to educate those surgeons who are doing total knee and total hip especially total hip, because a lot of total hips don't 
make it into outpatient physical therapy, right? Total knees is pretty much a gold standard, but total hips, it's not. And perhaps that person is in the position of needing a total hip because their hip got chewed up due to something down further away from the chain, which is most likely lacking ankle dorsiflexion. So I think what you're onto and integrating that as a part of your initial evaluation of just saying, look, I'm going to formally measure this, not eyeball it, formally measure closed chain dorsiflexion on every patient that for sure is lumbar spine and down. And if you don't find anything significant, great, move on. But if you do, I think there's a real easy conversation and hopefully what we're going to get to during series two and three of this is why that's really important and why we need to work on it to reduce the likelihood that this joint is going to get chewed up. So I'll let the other two of you answer. Yeah. I mean, like you said, without going too far in depth into mechanics, you're completely correct. And I can think of a number of knee replacements where I've had some issues, had some deficits. And oftentimes it's one of those, you get things going really well on the table and you see them walking and it's like, it's not bad. They just haven't learned how to use it correctly yet. And they come back the next session like, oh, we, were, we, we didn't maintain as much as I thought. No biggie. We'll address it again. You make good improvements on the table. Still better functionally, but not quite there. And you keep running this pattern of like, why am I not making changes last as long as I think that they should be? And often you work on that ankle and then suddenly you're seeing, yeah, they're going to regress a little bit between sessions, but it's such a small and expected regression as opposed to like, all right, I feel like we're almost going to start back where we were the last couple of weeks. You get that ankle dorsiflexion going. You're going to improve tibial rotation, which is so often a big driver for knee mobility that can be limited. It just is amazing how it goes up the chain and hits things. And I've, I've really found that addressing the ankle oftentimes first gives me that foundation that I need to be successful everywhere else. Kind of like we, you know, we've talked with some of our pelvic floor um, podcasts about that really is a true foundation of the core. You need to set that appropriately for everything else that sits upon it. Well, this is the other thing <laughs> that's going to be holding a lot of the weight of our body. Great set point. that as an appropriate foundation. It's kind of like the core of the lower extremity and the rest of it. Then that mechanic will allow you to be successful elsewhere. At least that's what I've experienced with a lot of my patients. No, I, I really agree. And I think something I've been incorporating more over the last year or so is regardless of the type of patient that's sitting in front of me, I just do a quick screen on their ankle mobility because it's what hits the ground first. It's what takes the force and has to transmit it up the chain. And if that is the, it's the first dysfunction that takes force, it's going to set up the rest of the body for not being the most successful. And I think if you show that thoroughness to all of your patients, regardless of their diagnosis, they are going to see that you are looking out for their long-term success. You're looking for, you know, not just a quick solution. You really want them to be successful and they're going to be impressed because you are like the most thorough therapist in their mind. You're not just getting that 120 degrees of knee bend after a total knee. You're making sure that the full picture is taken care of. Well, and I think even before we look at it objectively is don't be afraid to get in it into that subjectively. You know, they fill out, most people fill out a past medical history form, right? And they may not put the fact that they've had six, six ankle sprains when they were 20 years old and they were playing competitive softball. And now they're 67 years old and they had a total hip replacement, right? But I think that's our job as the movement specialists to dive into that history. I mean, I don't know how many times and I've witnessed 
as significant of other times when a practitioner lays their hands on a body part and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I was hit by a car two weeks before I started PT school. Oh my gosh, no, I've never fallen on my rear end. And they, they touch somebody's, you know, coccyx or sacrum and they're like, wait, I had a significant fall after a 17 and a half hand tall horse when I was 16 years old. And that was 20 years ago, right? So I feel that it's our job not only to look at it objectively, which is crucially important, but also to gather some information subjectively about that. That's kind of a a go-to region now in all of my initial evaluations is, have you had ankle injuries? Nope. Okay. Then if I measure it objectively and I see a big difference, like the other day I saw a 17% difference. They're like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you I was in a motorcycle accident in 1966 before I went to Quantico, Virginia. And it's like, wait, I asked you if you had an ankle injury and you said no, but you were in a long leg cast because you broke your femur. So their ankle was not injured, but it was immobilized for a prolonged period of time. So I think Rach, like that question is phenomenal that you just asked us. Like, boom. Well, I'm so glad that I have just blown your mind. (laughs) Um, I just want to touch really quick on what you were talking about, Dan, regarding taking a history, because I think that especially for our younger listeners and younger, I mean by younger in your profession, not age. um, Goodness gracious, being an amazing historian um, is awesome. But how often do we really have amazing historians in front of us? It's pretty rare. And I'm sitting here thinking that if anyone ever asked me in um, that kind of setting in a physical therapy type of evaluation appointment, I don't think that I would ever say that I actually sprained my ankle. However, I'm right now playing in my mind how many like small little tweaks I've had on various hikes or a crash off of a bike or um, etc. Stepping off of a curb or... Maybe I don't recollect certain things because I had some adult beverages that evening. I'm not sure. Right. So I think it's really important to also remember as physical therapists and um, in our profession, as we're interviewing and trying to understand people's lives, assume that there's so many things you're never going to know and you're never going to understand. And so you have to like have these extra FBI little goggles on to really go in and investigate every single little thing possible because let's just face it, human beings, like they're not that great of historians unless that's your profession. Well, I mean, you're completely correct too because I just want to expand on that for a brief moment. Pain serves a purpose in our body. Pain is supposed to tell us there's an issue that's going on. Our brain is designed to forget painful incidents once they are gone. That is what our brain is designed to do because there's not a purpose in recalling pain because, again, pain's like, oh, I'm touching something hot. Move your hand. Oh, my foot just stepped on something sharp and pointy. Move your foot. It's designed to give a stimuli that your brain reacts to quickly. And then we know, obviously, getting into pain science, how that uh, relays is going to be thrown off massively. But it is hard to recall pain. It's hard to recall what you felt and how especially for those that don't have a lot of experience with pain, try to think back to specifically some really painful instances. I'm sure you could think of times you had a severe pain. Can you think, though, of how the pain felt? Could you describe your pain other than, like, excruciating? Oftentimes, you can't, and there's a reason for that. We're not designed to remember it. So as Rachel said, even when you find that great historian, which, hallelujah, but it's so infrequent, 
they're not even always built to remember those things. So you do have to do some more investigative digging. And then like Dan said, you can start queuing up memories and thoughts with some just simple tactile touch, but it takes the time to have a conversation, dig in, build some rapport, work on things, look at them, explain the why. And then it's amazing what you start finding when you start digging deep in that capacity. All right. So I want to go back to something that Paul mentioned earlier related to plantar fasciitis slash Achilles tendonitis tendinosis. Paul, if you can allude just a little bit for our listeners before we get into parts two and three related to, um, you know, what all goes into true ankle dorsiflexion and then ways to, you know, treat it and re-educate it. Can you talk about what you have seen in individuals as well as what research supports for those, those people who do lack that little bit of closed chain dorsiflexion? And what we may see in gait as early heel off and the stress that that places through the, through the tissues. So um, one thing they've shown pretty well in research is individuals that have repeated lateral ankle sprains, kind of going to what Rachel talked about earlier, they tend to have an inhibition of gluteus medius. And looking at these, they obviously, they get a report for who's had chronic issues. They put actual electrodes on, measure muscle firing one side versus the other. There's a statistically significant difference being less on the side of a previous injury. For those that have chronic Achilles issues, they show a significant decrease in ability to fire gluteus maximus. So we're talking about ankle and foot injuries that then have a muscle firing component. So it goes back to some things you guys were talking about earlier with impacting up the chain and looking at your hip replacement patient. Well, what's one of the more important things after a hip replacement? Getting muscles to turn back on after the trauma, right? Well, if they've got a bunch of ankle mechanic issues, it doesn't mean you can't be successful turning muscles on, but it might not be as successful as you'd like as quickly as you would like. So clearing that ankle can give you a much greater successful point for getting on turning actual muscles on. I've, I've seen this a lot. And, and Rachel, as you said, you know, we've taken some really good IPA courses together. And I particularly love the, the skills I've learned to help you know, use PNF patterns, use techniques, use different things to activate muscles. What I found is if I clear the area for mechanical efficiency, make sure things can at least move the way I want them to, maybe not control, but at least move, the response I get from these PNF te- type techniques is so much greater. But I also have to ask in my mind, all right, a chronic Achilles issue shuts down glute max. Okay, why? Um, we, we know that localized inflammation can shut down muscle firing, but I, I don't think the Achilles and the glute max are particularly considered local to each other. <laughs> hope not unless, well, your foot somewhere it shouldn't be. <laughs> so looking at this in, in my mind, and I'm sure the people out there that have seen this and looked at it further than I, but I haven't seen a direct correlation, but I, I'm making the assumption that chronic Achilles issues probably means tight gastroxoleus, probably means calcaneal inversion because of the um, gastroc insertion, etc., which probably means you're lacking dorsiflexion, which probably means you're changing gait mechanics. So my thought is that it's a mechanical change that's then inhibiting the muscle as opposed to a injury that happened. So in that case, maybe you don't have chronic Achilles issues. Maybe you've never had any Achilles tendinopathy of any type. But if you're lacking the same dorsiflexion you'd expect to see in that chronic Achilles tendinopathy patient, it's probably going to have the exact same impact up the chain, right? So even if there isn't an issue, they're subjectively aren't reporting things, you, you could still find a lot of those significant issues and treat them. And that goes on what you're saying, Dan. Um, when I, I've had patients that have had plantar fasciitis issues, plantar fasciitis issues, sorry. 
I, I was unsure which way I wanted to go with that word for an issue. It's going to be plantar fascial issues or plantar fasciitis, and I almost combined the two into one conglomerate of mess. <laughs> anyway, back on track. Um, you know, you look at them and they got that early early heel off, which is I want to do make a good point more than just ankle dorsiflexion, and we will get into this in the next parts of the series. But great toe extension, midfoot mobility, all those things play a role potentially in early heel off. However, that heel is moving more quickly. And it's lifting up before you get to the two-point terminal stance when it should. And I'm walking. My other leg hasn't fully struck the ground where I want it to. My weight is probably further posterior than I'd expect because it hasn't fully gotten anterior. So if I have a center of mass that is behind my base of support, the structures between those two are going to be stabilizing it for us. So if my base of support is my forefoot, because again, the rear foot has lifted up, and my center of mass is posterior to it, that's a lot of stress on... What's the stabilizing factor for the ankle's uh, arch? Plantar fascia. You know, have that patient try to stand there on their toes and put all their weight posteriorly for a prolonged period of time and see how their plantar fascia feels. It's not going to feel good. So you lack that. That's going to be a big challenge to it. You lack that when you're running. Go put them on a trail. Go put them on a trail that even demands more dorsiflexion than usual and has uneven surfaces. And you can then pretty quickly see how this dorsiflexion component is going to have a huge impact on their plantar fascial health. Plantar fascial health. And then... Again, continue to be issues down the road. All right. I like everything you're saying. It, I'm, I'm on board. I think it's super important and we all need to be doing that. But I do have one question. Since we're talking about ankle dorsiflexion, how are we defining ankle dorsiflexion? Are we talking about open chain, closed chain, real motion, relative motion? What What is it? Great question. And, you know, too often I feel like we think about it in school, just dorsiflexion. You think about the foot moving to a dorsiflex extended position, get a little eversion in there with it. We need to understand the full mechanics. That's what we want to go into in these upcoming podcasts. The next two parts of the series, we want to talk about you know, what is dorsiflexion? You know, anterior tibial translation. What are all the motions happening? What happens across the rear foot, the forefoot, the midfoot? What's occurring up the chain? So let's give a little more mechanics. We talked a lot about mechanics today. So we'll explain what those mechanics actually are and what it means and how the muscles fire and then get into how we actually assessing it. As you said, is it open? Is it closed? What are you looking at? And how do you make that actually applicable to your patient's needs? And then how do you treat it and teach it to work again appropriate with respect to your patient's needs? So great question and perfect primer to upcoming podcasts that y'all should probably listen to. So anyway, with that note, thank you all for listening to the Therapists in Motion podcast. As always, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thank you all. <laughs>